This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The current national debt is over $22 trillion and really no signs of slowing down. And this will have long-term consequences on our country's growth, ability to respond to wars or recessions, and address social needs, among other things. Our next guest says that besides the debt, we haven't invested enough, and thus many people have been left behind. Brookings Institution's William Gale suggests investing in the future is the key to finding sustainable long-term growth. Gale is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, as well as director of the Tax Policy Center, which is a joint venture between Brookings and the Urban Institute. He has a new book out in which he provides a plan to strengthen the economy and the nation. The book is titled Fiscal Therapy, Curing America's Debt Addiction and Investing in the Future, and a pleasure to have him joining us right now. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It is interesting because I, I think we all understand that we have a rising debt, that it is a, a relatively significant problem in this country right now, but it doesn't appear that enough is being done to address it. Well, that is an understatement. Uh, uh, there are Indeed, there are active efforts to oppose doing anything about it uh, right now, but even in the best of times for dealing with fiscal problems, long-term issues in particular, uh, politicians are hesitant to, uh, to jump in. Why, wh- where are your greatest areas of concern surrounding the issue of debt in general right now? Uh, the, in terms of the debt itself, uh, we're on an unsustainable path. Uh, that doesn't mean we're going to face a crisis anytime soon, but, but you know, something's got to give. Uh, uh, we need at some point to uh, uh, adjust spending downward and, and raise taxes. And the idea behind the book is these are necessary changes, but we can use them as an opportunity uh, to do a lot of good things. Right. You you talk about a couple of components early on in the book, uh, uh, one involving entitlement spending. You mentioned about taxes, but also investing in the future, which we mentioned at the top. Right. This is this. Is, there are these twin problems I focus on. If you if you just think about the budget, then you're naturally led to spending cuts and tax increases. But when you start thinking about the way we tax and the way we spend, it's pretty obvious we're not doing uh the right the right structural changes uh even apart from the level of taxes and spending so on spending we need to be doing more on the investment side and on taxes we need to be taxing things that uh uh have less deleterious uh economic effects like a consumption tax uh and a carbon tax and so we need to change the structure of taxes and spending as well as the levels of taxes and spending. Well, let me touch on the entitlement spending for a second, because that's obviously a concern these days uh, in terms of the amounts, obviously surrounding health care. Where do we need to go with a variety of different elements we're entitled in spending, not just health care, but you have a variety of different programs that are that are in play here? Right. I mean, the two major entitlements are Social Security and Medicare. And lots of times people say entitlements when they, they as a polite way of saying Social Security and Medicare. Yeah. Uh, and they face, they, they create different situations. Social Security uh, has always been kind of a program that stood on its own two feet 
And so um, a couple of years ago, I was on a commission that the Bipartisan Policy Center ran that came up with a, a bipartisan Social Security proposal that would, among other things, raise the retirement age, raise the payroll cap, uh, things like that, and provide sort of a balanced reform uh, to put Social Security on long-term uh, financial uh, firm ground. On Medicare, the problem is a little different. It's that health care spending, uh, which is huge, uh, is needs to be reined in. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of spending in health care that, according to empirical research, is not is not justified. There's a lot of ways that we pay doctors based on their inputs, uh, or hospitals, providers, testers, whatever, based on their inputs rather than the quality of the the outcome. And so I it, oh, and one other thing in Medicare, Medicare pays more for drugs, the same drugs than Medicaid or the Veterans Affairs Health Program does, so like 25% more. And there's no reason uh, for that other than politics. So we, I believe we, we can save some money there, too. So on health, the primary budgetary concern is cutting spending, controlling spending. But at the same time, we want to be sure that uh, we've extended coverage, uh, health insurance coverage, as far as we possibly can. I don't think those goals are contradictory, mm-hmm. but they, they, they make the problem harder. Specifically about Social Security, and, and obviously a lot of people have talked in the last couple of years uh, about uh, the potential of Social Security going insolvent uh, around 2034, 2035 in, in that uh, uh, time frame. Uh, where are you on, on your level of concern around that program in general? Well, I think uh, I think that might be the good news in all of this. Uh, because uh, the trust fund running out of money in 2034 for Social Security or 2026 for Medicare right. uh, might be the type of thing that that forces policymakers to take action. Uh, you know, you never want to wish for a crisis, but the problem politically with the this long-term fiscal issue is their backs are never really against the wall. They can always wait one more day. They can always put it off. And so the trust fund exhaustion dates provide kind of hard constraints where they have to do something. They may not do the right thing at that point, but they have to do something at that point. Right. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. We're joined on the phone by William Gale of the Brookings Institution. His new book, Fiscal Therapy, Curing America's Debt Addiction and Investing in the Future, uh, is uh, out now. So where do you see the most reasonable and acceptable but also possible and and positive investments in the future for for this country well i think the 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 three things that are critical to do first are first invest more in children uh in their education uh preschool programs uh families with kids child care the whole panoply of uh programs and options for investing in children and the argument there is both uh, an, equi- an equity one, which is kids' status in life does not really depend on things they do. It depends on their parents and their community and so on. But it's also an efficiency argument 
we as a waste as a nation are wasting resources by not making sure that our kids are getting the best education in child care and uh, possible. So investment in kids is number one. Investment in infrastructure is number two. Uh, I think everybody knows we have the lagging infrastructure issues that everyone can think of their favorite example, whether it's Kennedy Airport or a bridge or a road somewhere. Uh, and the third thing is we need to start financing those things with a carbon tax, for example, right. uh, which would help dealing with climate change, but would also help on the fiscal side. So if I had to choose three of the many proposals in the paper to, to do now, those, those would be the most urgent ones. What is the expectation that then you have if we can put together some form of plan that addresses these these areas? Uh, are we talking about slowing the national debt, being able to halt it, or can we find a path to start reducing it again? Uh, that's a great question. The the current baseline proposal is or baseline projection is that a debt will rise from about 80% of GDP now to about 180% of GDP in 30 years, by 2050. And the proposals in the book get it down to 60% by 2050, which is uh, uh, less than it is now, more than it has been in the past, but gets it down to a, a steady, sustainable 60% of GDP. And is that is that a fair number to, to have an expectation of, of where it should be right now? Uh, it's, I think that's the right long-term goal. If somebody told me the long-term goal should be 80%, uh, or a hundred percent, I couldn't prove them wrong. Right. But, uh, the notion that it would be going to 180% and rising after that, uh, seems definitely wrong. And I don't know anyone who, who doesn't think that. There, there's an interesting historical element that you bring into this book as well. Uh, be, obviously, you have to look at the numbers and, and, and the policy and where we need to go. But you also look at this from a historical perspective in what debt has really meant in terms of the history of the U.S. And you talk about the fact that for many, many decades, uh, debt was under control and it really only had – a rise when we saw a war of some kind, but then we were able to get it under control. But it was really around the time of President Reagan when we really started to see debt going up for something other than military conflict. Uh, that's right. And there, there are really two aspects of this that I think are important from the fiscal history uh, side. By the way, I wrote the fiscal history chapter because I thought if I looked back over a couple hundred years of history, I would find the answer as to what we what we need to do. And as I'll explain in a second, that turned out to be wrong. So there's two there's two aspects of the history. One is that debt can be useful. You know, we use it to finance big spikes in national defense or big initiatives or to fight recessions and so on. So it's not like all debt is bad. Right. That's point one. Point two is the situation we face now is totally different from any historical debt situation we've faced in the past. And that's that's kind of what I was disappointed about when I wrote the fiscal history chapter, because right now we've got this built-in chronic imbalance between taxes and spending. There's no war that's going to end that will bring the budget back in line. There's no recession that's going to end that will boost revenues. We've just got the government spending more than it's taking in revenues, basically right. now and into the future. And uh, by increasing amounts into the future, so that they, that creates a different uh, set of concerns, a different set of constraints 
than ending a war or ending a depression. And, and you br- mentioned that fact that we are right now uh, spending more than we're actually taking in, which I think is an important component. Now, when you talk about the tax cuts that were enacted by the current administration uh, and where we are headed in, in the future with this. Yeah, so the economy is booming right now, and it's grown the last couple of years, and yet the deficit has gone up, not down. Normally, the deficit goes down as the economy booms because revenues come in and, uh, you know, government safety net program spending goes down. But because of the tax cuts and other things, uh, deficits have continued to rise. And so, uh, I mean, we're in the midst of good times, at least in the economy as a whole, and uh, uh, the debt is high relative to historical standards. We've never had debt this high on a deficits this high on a sustained basis uh, when the economy was so strong. So if, if and when the economy turns down, then we're in real trouble. That's why that's why looking ahead a little bit right now. So I'm trying to do in the book is, I think, is a useful exercise. We're joined by William Gale of the Brookings Institution. His book, Fiscal Therapy, Curing America's Debt Addiction and Investing in the Future. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. So, and again, this may be a question of long-term thought here, Bill, but but how do we start to think about the prospect of trying to reduce the debt? Because, as you alluded to, it's really not a consideration right now. Yeah, in terms of how we, we move forward, the first step is to, I think, disavow people of the notion that there are easy ways to do this. Uh, you know, cutting foreign aid, cutting government workers' salary you know, reducing the subsidy to public TV or Big Bird is, is just not going to do it. That's rounding error in the budget. Right. It's basically we need to reform Social Security and Medicare in ways that respect the anti-poverty roles that those programs play. I don't want to des- decimate those programs. I want to reform them, but keep uh, the crucial elements. And the other is there's no way around this. We need to raise taxes. And in the process, uh, we need to reform taxes as well. But the, the big moving parts here are a value-added tax, which is a national consumption tax, uh, a carbon tax, uh, and then changes to existing taxes, the income tax and the corporate tax. It almost it sounds like there's an element of this where the reform part of, of this tax component uh, may be even more important than, than actually adding more new taxes, correct? Uh, in terms of the economy, the structure of the taxes, the reform that you mentioned, will be very important. Right. In terms of closing the deficit, right. we'll need we'll need new taxes as well. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at Biz Radio B I Z Radio one thirty two or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney twenty one. So, in terms of the average consumer, and you mentioned you want to make sure that with some of these programs that they are still supportive of people that need them. How does this mix of ideas that you bring forward, how is this going to potentially impact the average consumer playing out five years, 10 years, 15 years, do you think? So I don't have formal estimates of this, but everything that I understand and everything that I was trying to push in the, in the proposals leads to the following 
uh, low-income households are going to be better off. There's a variety of programs for them that will help them uh, help them invest in their own career and future. High-income households will be paying significantly more in taxes, uh, which I think is justified on several grounds, name, namely the fact that, that, A, it's the only way to get them to share in the fiscal burden, and B, their income has gone way up, even though their 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 tax their tax rates haven't. And this, uh, so oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish up. Uh, uh, the the big moving part is the middle class, and I think that the middle class will have to pay more taxes under these uh, proposals. What they would get in exchange for that would be a stronger economy, more economic mobility, uh, less. Uh, diffuse income distribution. But the issue is the fiscal problem is so big that we can't finance it just on the backs of the wealthy. Uh, It's the middle class that's been benefiting uh, all these years from many of these programs. And there's just just no way to get there from here uh, just by raising taxes on high-income households. The the idea of where we want to see the economy down the road with some of these elements play in, can you go back and and look at history at at a time where it may have been a similar type of concept? I mean, obviously the numbers would be, you know, different, but where the the elements may have been the same. Uh, Some of the elements have been in the same in the past. For example, after Reagan cut taxes, which you mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, in the 80s and 90s, there was a series of bipartisan deficit reduction proposals that took place starting in 82 and going all the way through 97. Right. And um, what they did was they turned uh, the deficit situation in 1982, which David Stockman described as deficits as far as the eye can see, uh, to a situation by the end of the century uh, which where we had surpluses as far as the eye can see. Uh, so that's a model for what we could do now in the future, uh, but it's 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 the best we've done in the past. But even if we did that, it would not be enough because the debt is so much higher right now, right? And uh, to begin with, and then because the demographic forces uh, were moving in our favor in the '80s and '90s as the baby boomers moved into the labor force and bought houses and had kids and stuff. And now demographic forces are working against us as the baby boomers are retiring. And we and, and we also obviously need to stay away from something as large and, and destructive as the recession was. Uh, that's right. This is an interesting point. Um, the economy is more important than the budget, right? Saving the budget and destroying the economy in the process would not be – most people would not consider that a win. Right. So, so um, we have to respect – the fact that the budget is part of the bigger economy and think first of what's best for the economy and then try to control control the budget. You mentioned a, a moment ago about people being left behind, and that's obviously a, a concern uh, and has been uh, for quite some time. And I see this all playing out. And again, this is, I think, to a degree, the relationship between some of the issues that are going on and what is not going on in Washington, D.C., is that we know that that people are being hurt, that there are quite a few of them out there being hurt, yet not enough is being done to address some of these issues. Uh, I mean, I agree totally. We we have uh, 
widening income distribution. We have lagging wages uh, at the bottom. We have uh, whole groups of families and kids and neighborhoods that are sort of cut off from uh, the economic advancement that the rest of the country is experiencing. And uh, I think this is important, not just not just for kind of raw economic reasons, but broader political, cultural, uh, social and moral reasons. Uh, you know, if we're going to be the greatest economy in the world, uh, it needs to be that way for almost everybody, not just for a few. How do you also deal with the issues? Uh, and part of this, again, is not people being uh, having people left behind. But how do you do deal with the issues uh, of security in general, both personal security, but also you know, making sure that the country as a whole is secure, especially as we've moved into, I think, what, what almost is a new economy right now because of how digital has taken over? Yeah, these are... Uh... These are rapidly changing times in terms of uh, digital technology and artificial intelligence and stuff like that. And, uh, I mean, it's very difficult to prescribe specific changes that can be made. What's more useful and, in fact, easier to do is to create a framework of, you know, social insurance where the government tells you go ahead and take those chances. You won't be destitute if you don't. Right. And so the government's willingness, ability to make sure that people have health insurance, to be sure that Social Security is a sound program, to have strong safety net uh, programs, I think is important, not only on the equity aspects of it, the fairness aspects of it, but in terms of the economic impact. Going back to to uh, the investment in kids that you mentioned before, how much of that really, uh, really kind of circles around education and where it needs to go in the next several decades? Uh, there are several components that could be pursued in terms of investing in kids. One is simply getting more income to family with kids, families with kids. So a, a universal child allowance or something like that. A second aspect of this is uh, child care so that the the both parents can work when the kid is young, affordable, affordable, high-quality child care. Uh, and a third aspect of this is the direct educational components that you just mentioned, whether it's pre-K uh, or more funding for schools uh, uh, or higher education. Uh, my, my inclination is to start the intervention as early as possible in the life cycle. Uh, of the child. If we wait for just higher education, for example, we've already lost uh, a lot of people. So I think there are many options here. What the book does is is, is um, carve out 1% of GDP that we can invest uh, in children and the safety net. And, and there are lots of ways to do it. And I focused on carving out the room for that in the budget uh, and listed many possibilities, but didn't pin down exactly which which ones we should purchase. Uh, quickly, going, going back, so a universal child allowance com- uh, composed of what? Uh, it would just be a payment of, of uh, you know, say $1,000 per family with a kid right. for, per, for each kid. The idea is just to get more resources to the families of children's, of, of, to to the to the families that have children. Great having you with us today, uh, Bill. I appreciate your time. It's a fantastic book and wish you all the best with it. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate it as well. Thank you. William Gale, uh, the author of the book Fiscal Therapy, Curing America's Debt Addiction and Investing in the Future. As you mentioned, it is uh, available in bookstores and online for your purchase uh, right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.